Yeah, cool. Okay, um, I am going to share a PowerPoint slide with everyone. Can you all see my screen? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay, great. So we'll be talking about IP rights in XR content. Um, so uh, I do work, uh, I'm an attorney. I do work um, in the video games, um, AR, VR, um, mobile apps space, mostly on the content side, not usually on the hardware side of things. Um, so this is a legal issue that's near and dear to my heart. I am an IP and advertising attorney. Um, so what I mean by that is I work with um, uh, companies that have intellectual property issues, primarily uh, what I call soft IP, so not hard patent issues, um, copyrights, trademarks, trade dress, trade secret, things of that nature. And then advertising um, is a, a subsection of one of the statutes from which we get our trademark laws at the federal level. And, um, you know, the statute itself is designed to look at um, to prevent consumer confusion and so from the perspective of working with companies that are um, either consumer facing or have advertising trying to make sure that their um, content doesn't run afoul of those laws um, so those are the places to find me that's sort of the perspective that i'm coming at this from i'm happy to take questions as we go it looks like we have a pretty small group dominique if it gets to be rather large maybe we can um, you know, change that. But as we're an intimate, you know, audience, I'm happy to have you unmute yourself and just pop a question in. Um, and um, we'll see how that goes. So want to start with patents and trade secrets first, um, you know, so the um, on the content side of things, the case that still really matters, and most of you have probably heard about it is a case called Alice Corp. Um, and essentially what we need to know is that the Alice decision makes it very difficult to get patents for software content. Um, it's not um, as ready an avenue for um, patentability as it is on the hardware side of things. I am not a patent prosecutor, so we're not gonna spend time on what is prosecutable and what is not prosecutable. The takeaway that I want you to have for purposes of thinking about content is it's generally difficult to get a patent for content. Um, but there are, even on the content side, some patent best practices to think about. Um, if you are, um, and, and I guess I should say disclosure, you know, this presentation is um, sort of focused on those who are creating the content as opposed to sort of licensing um, the content into some hardware piece. I really am more focused on content creation. So if you're a content creator and are working with content creators, thinking about what are your employee invention assignment agreements, those are pretty standard. There's forms that you can find online. Um, some of them are good, some of them are terrible. Um, but you know, the core piece is the invention assignment agreement should make sure that everything that someone works on um, and um, the someone can be an employee and the someone can be an independent contractor is, is owned by the company. And so a common thing that I see um, in this space in particular is you have founders who have an idea who start working on the content um, they get pretty far along down the content side before they ever form an entity, an LLC, a corporation. And um, part of the early work is to make sure that the founders are assigning over all of their IP to the entity that ultimately gets created. And then that everyone going forward has an employee invention assignment agreement that makes sure that the company owns all of the content that's created by the business. And this is a standard practice, whether it's hardware or software. Um, 
but it is something that I see too often that is not done, which is that there, there isn't the paperwork to make sure that the entity owns the intellectual property. Another piece that I see um, too often not happening is standard NDAs. Um, a lot of conversations are informal and, um, you know, there are business reasons for that. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you see content creators that are worried about ruffling the conversation by asking for an NDA or they think it's too early to ask for one. Um, and NDAs are going to come up um, to be really important when we talk about the flip side of patents, which is trade secrets. You have to show that you've kept things confidential. And so making sure that you're using a standard non-disclosure agreement and you're using it early and often, um, it's just a standard best practice. On the patent side, um, uh, talking to if there are questions about patentability, if there are questions about patents that are in the space, working with a patent prosecutor to get what's called a freedom to operate opinion. Um, you know, and this is really designed to make sure that you're not going to get sued for infringement. You know, there is still a lot of patent infringement litigation. And so, you know, preventatively working with counsel to make sure that you're not going to face an early patent litigation lawsuit, because that can cripple a new company. It can cripple any company, but, um, you know, it can certainly end the future for a new company if there is patent infringement. So, you know, working with patent counsel early, one, to ask the question, do I have something that's patentable, but also, can I continue to operate in the space? Is there risk to the business? Um, some best practices that, you know, I, I certainly recommend looking at. As I mentioned, trade secrets is the opposite side of the coin for patents. And this is a space that I play in much more often. And uh, trade secret laws, um, there's a federal law and there, is, um, there are state laws as well. Um, and uh, most states have adopted some form of what's called the Uniform Trade Secret Act. California has. So um, in California, you could see a trade secret um, case that is filed under both the state law and the federal law. Um, and, um, you know, essentially, a trade secret case is saying that there is a secret, um, you have kept that secret, and that secret provides economic value to the business. And there's a number of different factors that you have to show um, in order to bring a trade secret misappropriation case. Those usually happen when um, someone leaves the business. Someone leaves the business and, you know, they've sent themselves software, they've sent themselves code, they've sent themselves working files. Um, you know, we, we see a lot now where uh, working group cloud storage files aren't shut down. And so someone has access to it. Maybe they, you know, move all of the data from the company's uh, Dropbox account, for example, to their personal Dropbox account. Maybe they were doing that all the time while they were working and they just don't, don't delete the content. Um, you know, this is a sort of case that we see a lot. It's tied to employee mobility most often. Rarely do you see a competitor trying to infiltrate a business and steal the trade secrets. It's much more often that you see someone leave and take trade secrets with them. Um, you know, one fact pattern uh, that we've seen in, in the VR space in particular that, you know, doesn't follow this common, you know, trade secret um, you know, fact pattern that I've outlined is um, 
the the Zenimax versus Oculus VR, you know, and that was an acquisition case. Uh, and you know, I think everybody's probably familiar with that lawsuit. It's a few years old, um, and it gets talked about a lot uh, because of the copyright issues in that case. But it's important to know that there was a number of um, that there were trade secret um, claims as well. And the trade secret allegations included that there was confidential programming code, confidential methods, plans, designs, concepts, improvements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was a jury verdict in that case. And the verdict was there was no misappropriation of trade secrets. Uh, the point I want you to take away here is one, trade secrets can and often are alleged to be a very broad, very long list of things. Um, and as the case moves forward, the lawyers start to figure out what's really a trade secret, and that's part of the uh, the discovery process. Uh, but at the beginning, you know, the bucket is very large, and then it gets smaller as the case goes forward. The other piece is, even though these cases often arise in employee mobility issues, they don't have to. They can certainly arise in sort of complicated mergers and acquisitions. Um, dispute, you know, licensing deals, sort of friendship relationships, joint venture arrangements, things like that along the way that, you know, perhaps aren't papered perfectly. And I, I think that that was, you know, part of the, the pickle here in this, this lawsuit is there was a lot of early working relationships that um, perhaps weren't perfectly um, documented along the way. Um, you know, our next case is just another example of, um, uh, a case where trade secrets is part of the allegation. In this case, you know, what was driving the lawsuit was a patent infringement claim. But as I said, patent infringement and trade secrets, they're opposite sides of the coin. And what I mean by that is, you know, patent, you are going to the patent office and you are saying, this is my invention. This is what I've done. I'm going to teach the public how to do that. And in exchange for that, I get a patent trade secrets, you're saying, I'm not going to tell anybody, and I'm going to take a lot of efforts to make sure it's confidential and I keep it secret. And if I can do all of that, then I, I, get, I, I get to have a protectable piece of intellectual property. So you usually see um, variations on that theme in, in some cases. And this was one example of that. Um, but what was alleged to be a trade secret was an analysis of Samsung's products and um, GeoVector's products, um, augmented reality principles generally, and how the use of those principles in Samsung's products would work. And the court said, look, you know, augmented reality as a, as a principle is not something that's a trade secret. Um, so you can't, you can't claim a trade secret there. Um, and again, you know, part of the point here is it can be very difficult to identify a trade secret it, um, for the business. It can be very difficult to identify it for the lawyers in the litigation. And that is one of the places where these um, lawsuits tend to fail. And we'll talk a little bit about trade secret best practices in a moment. Um, this is another augmented reality trade secret case. Um, uh, again, messy contractual relationships, NDAs and employment agreements were, you know, not perfectly used, not used early on in a great way. Um, the allegations was um, not just trade secret misappropriation, it was breach of contract, fraud, other, other things. Um, this case uh, has a, you know, somewhat lengthy history. The case was dismissed, there was an appeal, then there was a subsequent dismissal of the trade secret claim. You know, what's interesting here is the court says that there's, um, 
you know, really no economic value to the thing the plaintiff was saying was a trade secret. But the court was also bothered by the fact that the plaintiff hadn't used um, the NDAs uh, in a way to, to show that the thing that was being claimed to be a trade secret was really secret. And so that was, that wasn't driving the court's decision, but it was part of the problem is there wasn't a great use of NDAs early on to maintain the confidentiality. So one of the things that I counsel companies to do around trade secrets um, is to identify them, really to think really hard about what are the trade secrets. What, what makes uh, a particular piece of content um, and, you know, usually we're talking about the back end, right? We're not talking about the front end because that's exposed to the consumer. So what's happening on the back end side of the, um, the content that is valuable uh, in some way that you don't think other, others have figured out and that, you know, perhaps you've already received an opinion of counsel that it's not patentable. And that's usually how this goes. You've received an opinion that you cannot patent something, but you're still really excited about it. And you don't think anyone solved this problem. Um, knowing that, knowing that ahead of time. And then you, um, you lock it down with passwords. You know, there's a very recent case, um, uh, post-COVID era case that says that if you have uh, meetings on Zoom where the team is going to talk about a trade secret and you haven't used a password and a meeting room function to prevent others from joining the meeting, then you can't show that you've taken reasonable steps to protect your trade secrets. Um, you know, so that's just one example of things that need to be done to protect the trade secrets. So it's important to know what they are and whether or not you need to be taking additional steps. And when I say uh, all the, yeah. A quick comment. Yep. Uh, I'm not a, uh, an expert like you, Kimberly, on trade secrets. I am an expert on military secrets. And it's like you said, it's remarkable what uh, people think is classified or secret but is available in the uh, open literature. I had just one example. A, a friend and I at RAND put together a thought piece on um, a stealth technology just from open, just from history books and uh, uh, just from books. And that Monday, we had uh, Air Force security crawling all over us asking why we were releasing top secret uh, data. And we had to show them, hey, Here's, here's the books we got it out of, and they were scratching their heads, but they were convinced it was uh, highly classified. It was from books. Yeah, and you, you raise a really great point. You know, so, so part of the, um, the test, if you will, for determining whether or not you have a trade secret is um, whether or not it obtains independent value because of its secrecy. And so a common corollary that you'll see in um, all the agreements, your NDAs, your employee invention assignment agreement, et cetera, is a phrase that says you don't have an obligation to keep confidential those things which you learn about independently of the relationship. And the reason is exactly as Chris highlighted, you don't get protection for things that are out there in the public just because you happen to not tell people you have that thing. So um, the quintessential example of a trade secret is the Coke formula. Um, that's not out there in the public and Coca-Cola um, you know, does a really great job of not telling people how to make Coca-Cola taste exactly like it tastes. It is a trade secret of Coca-Cola. But um, knowing what you as a, as a company believe to be your trade secrets can be very helpful 
because it um, creates a dynamic in which you're then taking the steps to perfect the confidentiality. All the agreements, you know, as I, as I say, you know, the um, one, making sure that the entity owns the intellectual property, including the trade secrets, and then making sure that contractors, vendors, employees, everyone has an obligation to protect the secrecy of the trade secret. Um, you know, one of the things I do when employees leave is I have them certify that they've deleted everything, that they've returned all the technology. And if I ever need to use that certification later in a lawsuit, you know, it's good evidence, one, to show that you're taking steps to protect your information. And two, if you do get in a dispute, you know, the, the employee, the individual, and perhaps the company that, that hire them, because that's usually the one that's going to you know, pay the judgment. Um, it's great evidence. So um, all the agreements, um, make sure you're locking down um, your trade secrets. Pre-hire diligence, what I mean there is, um, and I've seen this all too often, I have a case that looks like this right now, where you know one competitor hires someone from another competitor and that someone is perhaps you know an expert in their field. They know how to do something that um, you know, no one else really knows because of some expertise. The, um, the company that loses that individual uh, has an incentive to sue the company that hired that individual. Um, and where things go uh, rocky here is when the hiring company doesn't really understand what the individual maybe was exposed to at the prior company. And um, so we, we work through when we're doing this, you know, why are you hiring them? Are you hiring them because of this specific expertise? Or maybe you just like them and they're friends with someone else and you can deploy them to another team where they're not going to be putting the company at risk for facing a trade secret misappropriation lawsuit. So understanding, and this is usually the case with salespeople or really technical people. Why are you hiring them? Is there a risk to the business? And is there something we can do to mitigate the, best, the, the risk? And then creating a culture around trade secrets having value. Companies have done a great job with that, with trademarks and patents in particular. Not such a good job with copyrights. And generally, as I see it, a terrible job with trade secrets. And um, your intellectual property portfolio think about the asset value for the business isn't just your patents and your trademarks it's also your copyrights and it's also your trade secrets so all the things that businesses do to help individuals um, feel invested in creating value to the company vis-a-vis -vis the creation of patents it's the same uh, dynamic the same culture to create around trade secrets and then the strategic offboarding, that's sort of the opposite coin of the pre-hiring diligence. You know, is your employee going to a competitor? Why are they going to a competitor? You know, if it looks suspicious, did they stick a USB drive into the laptop? Did they do a, a giant download from the Dropbox account? You know, assessing those things to see whether or not you have, you know, risks that you need to get in front of. But thinking about trade secrets, um, really important. It's something that I don't see happen enough. And my mouse, there we go. So I'm going to pause there and see if anyone has any further questions or comments before I move on to copyright. I have one more quick um, uh, comment you were talking about emphasize to employees. Uh, there was uh, a time when I was uh, writing an article on uh, uh, types of uh, uh, special effects for movies 
and I went to London to interview the companies making the movie, lots of movies are made in London with Pinewood Studios and whatnot. Uh, and they were very careful about uh, not releasing anything. They were totally closed-mouthed. So I uh, went to a certain area of London and explored four different pubs where the workers went to drink, especially on Friday nights. And within an hour or so in those pubs, I found out everything I wanted to know. They were all talking with each other. Uh, hey, how are you? Uh, how are you rendering uh, liquid water? And oh, this is how we uh, do it. So in the pub, I found out everything I wanted to know that the uh, companies wouldn't tell me. Yeah, great as anecdote. Said, as you said, that a lot of the employees didn't even know that that stuff was uh, confidential. Yeah, there's a famous, and I can't remember what version of the iPhone it was, but. Um... You know, for those of you who don't know, I practice in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley. And uh, there was a bar, I think it was in Redwood City, where someone left a prototype for the iPhone behind at the bar. And, you know, then, of course, there were pictures and everything. Oh, the, the latest iPhone. Um, you know, I'd argue that person probably should have known that that was secret. But to your point, Chris, you know, a lot of times people don't know what the secrets are. They don't know that they shouldn't be gabbing about it at the pub. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kimberly. Yeah. Uh, recently, I'm conducting some NDAs because I my background is design, so I don't really know anything about laws. So I kind of look up like my previous um, employers NDA, and I kind of copy and paste and make my own NDA. Is that working or? <laughs> so I have seen. Uh, I mean, the short answer is I don't know because I haven't seen your NDA. I can say I have seen NDAs when I bring on um, new companies where they've done exactly that. And sometimes I read the NDA and I go, good, great, okay. And sometimes I read the NDA and say, no, I'm going to rewrite this and we're going to do a new one. Um, and so it does, it does depend. I, I think a lot of forms that you'll find online do a pretty decent job of laying out all the intellectual property, including trade secrets. But even five years ago, um, you know, I had I was seen NDAs that didn't list trade secrets as something you had to keep confidential, which just, you know, massive eye roll from the lawyer here, because that's, of course, the thing that you do need to keep confidential. Um, so, you know, I would... I would say it's probably good enough. You know, forms have gotten better. Forms off the internet have gotten better. But without taking a look at it, you know, it's, it's, I'm not in a position to say thumbs up. And I have very recently seen some examples that I thought were insufficient. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'll give you one NDA of a uh, uh, company. And amazingly, it was scrubbed by a law firm. But uh, the... Uh, the Hollywood company I was consulting to, and they sent me an NDA, and I said, uh, gee, a legal contract has to be enforceable. Uh, this is not enforceable. And they went, huh? And one of, the, uh, one of the clauses was that I would not join a company that over the next two years would do any work in the same area as the uh, one I was consulting to. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a crystal ball I can't predict the future. Uh, nor do for a company like uh, Boeing, which I've worked for, do I know what every one of their departments 
is uh, doing, it's, this is simply not possible physically to uh, do. They did change it, but I was amazed that, that for a, a company that no one else had caught that. Yeah, and you highlight a really good point just in terms of general employment agreements. In California, there's a statute um, that'll, that prevents sort of a lot of non-competes. Um, that's not true in other states. And so we see a lot of disputes over whether or not you can have um, a provision that says, I won't go work for a competitor for some period of years, uh, especially when you have intrastate issues. Um, so it's, it's a sticky area and it's one where I see a whole variety of clauses around covenants not to compete and covenants not to solicit. All right, so we're gonna to move to copyright, which I think everyone generally knows. Um, and, and Dominique, I'm happy to send you this slide deck as a PDF so everyone can have it later. I'm not gonna read the copyright statute to everyone here, but um, you know, when we think about copyrights, we're thinking about um, something artistic that's fixed in a tangible medium. Um, and so that medium obviously can be movies, it can be video games, you know, obviously it's art, art that you see in a museum, but it can be art installations, um, books, poems, you know, I think we kind of all generally know things that are copyrightable when we see them. Um, so certainly content in virtual reality is much like content in a video game, be it mobile or console, um, it is fixed in a tangible medium. Augmented reality is, um, you know, somewhat of a challenge because, you know, you have kind of the layers, you have the real life layer, and you have the digital layer. Um, you know, I think we're still going to end up in roughly the same place with copyrights, but it's a, it's a slightly different sort of lens with which to look at. We're not going to dig into that so much because I do think that that's all um, going to end up coming to the same place. Um, and you'll see, um, you'll see why in a minute. But um, when we're talking about copyrights, we're talking about those issues. So you can't infringe someone else's copyright, but you can, um, you know, defend a copyright infringement with a fair use argument. And there's factors. And so whenever you see factors for a legal test, the answer is always going to be, I don't know, because there's a lot of things that the lawyers have to balance to come to say, is it or isn't it likely a fair use? But the factors are the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work. You can see it here. Um, and so from a fair use analysis, you're almost always balancing these and kind of asking the question, is it fair use? You know, lawyers like to say that using um, all of the pictures like this in their slide desk, well, this is fair use because I'm teaching you, I'm talking to you, I'm using this example as, a, as an example of something. I'm not trying to take magic leaps, copyright, and profit off of it myself. So this is an example of a typical fair use. So originality is one of the things that you have to show to get a copyright. Um, so a smiley face in and of itself is not something that you're gonna be able to register as a copyright. Although there's um, a lot of registrations for emojis that are various forms of smiley faces. Some of them get registered as copyrights, some of them don't, but you have to have originality. This is an example that I think um, you know, highlights the originality issue pretty well. So Magic Leap had um, a video on their website of a whale in a gymnasium. And um, 
you know, that's the top left picture. And um, uh, another a fan or another company, however you want to think about it, took Magic Leap's video off their website and then put that video on YouTube. And um, you know, it's the same. It's the same thing. Um, and Magic Leap sued. They said, "Take it down. Take it off of YouTube." And there's no question that there's um, uh, an infringement here. Um, there's no question that Magic Leap. Um, their picture has originality. Um, you know, they're showing the use of their technology by, you know, having the augmented whale jumping in the gymnasium and they've taken a video of it to show you. Um, and so, you know, this case was rather easily disposed of for, I think, obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, the point is you have to have originality to get a copyright. Uh, usually that's um, not a problem. Um, you know, some of you may be familiar with um, Fortnite and, um, you know, the dance emotes that you can have in the game. And there's been, you know, a good amount of press and a good amount of um, just sort of talk around, um, you know, the dance moves. And, you know, the, the, the point here is you don't have to have, when we say fixed in a tangible medium, it doesn't have to be video games. It doesn't have to be, you know, art on the wall. You can have um, a dance move that can be subject to uh, copyright, but you need to be able to put the steps down in writing. It's so the classic example of dances that are copyrightable is choreography for the ballet. Um, and so the question, you know, that was arising in these dance moves cases is whether or not there was originality, um, in addition to, frankly, a host of other issues. And um, for, for the most part, there wasn't originality. And so, um, you know, Epic Games didn't have problems, if you will, for using the, the various dances in, in their video games. So you can have uh, copyright for dances, but you still have to have an original dance. Um, you know, another sort of example that kind of takes us out of a traditional medium, just again, and thinking about um, taking ourselves away from the art gallery um, concept is tattoos. You can have a copyright in a tattoo. You know, you're fixing it in a tangible medium on a person. Um, What's interesting about these cases, and we'll talk more about licensing later, but it highlights the difference between um, one, um, just how court cases proceed, um, because the fact patterns between these two cases is frankly very similar, but they have very different outcomes. Um, and it also highlights the, um, the copyright principles themselves. So the case on the left, um, Alexander versus Take-Two, that case ended up with the court saying, there's no question that there's a copyright and there's no question that there's been copying. And the court goes on to look at questions of was there a license and um, allows, allows the case to move forward to trial. The case on the right, Solid Oak Sketches versus 2K, the court focused on um, the copying aspect and found that there was it's not copying because in the game, the way in which the um, tattoos was rendered was 
so fuzzy, right? If you think about the difference between being up close to a person and seeing their tattoo and seeing the rendering of a tattoo from an avatar that's running across the, your, your television screen playing basketball and is one of hundreds of you know, individuals that you could select to play and you know, maybe you're going to get an angle with that person's um, tattoo, maybe you're not, just all of those issues. The court had ended up c concluding that there, there wasn't any copying because a reasonable observer wasn't going to look at that um, basketball um, avatar and say, ah, I see, the, I see the tattoo, I see it right there. Um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting that you have very different outcomes in what are um, very similar cases. And for those of you who don't know, Take-Two and 2K are related entities. So similar games, similar companies, similar allegations of infringement, very different outcomes. And so when you're thinking about, hey, can I do this? You know, I'm creating original content. Is this something that I can do? Uh, keep in mind, there's a lot of risk analysis that you need to be talking through with your attorney because you can have very similar fact patterns with very different outcomes. Um, going back to, um, you know, originality specifically, you know, I, th I, I think one of the things that's interesting in virtual reality in particular is um, just avatars. And we certainly see that in the video game space. And so we have good, um, we have good laws around that already. But essentially the case law says that if you were to take a picture of Mickey Mouse and take that picture and put it perfectly into a video game, or, you know, we don't have it yet, put it perfectly into, um, you know, virtual reality, you're um, going to have a copyright infringement problem, right? Um, Mickey Mouse, there's a copyright in it for obvious reasons. Um, and so the case law has developed over time to different things. You know, if you take Mickey Mouse and you make a costume um, for Halloween, for instance, is, is there copyright infringement? The case is, yeah, there's copyright infringement. Um, and so as we draw that thread forward, you know, that same analysis, that same thinking needs to apply. So the point here just being, just because it's virtual reality, just because it's augmented reality, doesn't mean that you're not infringing the copyright of Disney or, or whomever. Um, so there still needs to be originality. You know, and I guess another way to put it is the technology doesn't make the artwork original. Um, there's a concept in copyright about derivatives. So the copyright owner owns the derivatives of the copyright. And so we have um, pictures from a case um, having to do with uh, the Batmobile. And um, the lawsuit involved the Batmobile is depicted in um, the Michael Keaton um, version of the movie, which I think is the best of the bunch. Um, and then the old Adam West um, television show. And so this is the one obviously from the movie. And the bottom is a 3D replica of the Batmobile. And the, law, the lawsuit ensued. Is the bottom Batmobile infringe the copyright of um, the movie Batmobile? And the answer is yes, it does. Um, so even though you know, the movie Batmobile, if you will, is depicted in the movie, the 3D replica, a derivative, if you will, is, um, is something that's owned by DC Comics. Um, and so you, know, you can think about the inverse of that, you know, something that exists in the real world that is um, moved into 
an augmented space that is moved into virtual reality, but is otherwise, um, you know, infringing um, in, in the way in which it is here, are you going to be able to say, no, 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 because I put it in augmented reality, because I put it in virtual reality, it's, it's different. No, the copyright owner is still going to be able to say, I own the derivative of that. That's mine and you're infringing. Um, so here's an example of, um, you know, a similar concept, if you will, uh, where, you know, Niantic sued Global Plus Plus. And um, there's a lot of claims there, not, not just the copyright infringement claim. This comes from Niantic's lawsuit um, about their Harry Potter game. So on the left is the interface for the game. And on the right is the interface in Global's version. And um, roughly, as I understand it, is Global was also allowing some ways to cheat in the game, which has its own host of problems. Um, but you can see that the addition is the, the dots, if you will, on the left-hand side here. Um, otherwise, not a very different image. And the, the court had no problem finding copyright infringement in this example. Um, for all the principles that we've talked about, right? Um, so this is my example of kind of uh, real world uh, items. So we have a case from the Supreme Court that says you can have a copyright in useful articles. Um, and that's the, the image at the bottom of the cheerleader uniforms. You can have a copyright in useful articles, um, but it has to be um, separable from what makes the thing useful. And so the question is, um, and, and I think the question's gonna be answered by the Supreme Court opinion, although I haven't seen cases on it, is what about useful arguments that are rendered back and forth, if you will, between AR and VR in the real world? So a hammer from a video game, you put it in the real world to sell merchandise or you know, some merchandise that you put into you know, an AR or VR space. You know, the answer I think is gonna be the same. Again, we haven't seen that case, but I do think that the Supreme Court case has answered that question. And again, it's for the same principles that we've talked about. You know, you're going to have to show that you have a copyright, which part of that is the originality piece. Um, but because of the principles of derivatives, you're you know, likely going to have not much of a problem obtaining um, you know, a conclusion that you have copyright in one version or the other, going into um, digital or out of digital. Yeah, Chris, if I saw I, you. If yeah. I hear this right, uh, say if you buy a Mickey Mouse shirt or a sports team shirt, uh, it's probably safer not to wear that in a movie that you're making. Is that right? Correct. Correct. I um, I generally tell companies not to have, and you have trademark issues there as well. So there are trademarks, you know, in um, the logos for sports teams, for example. Um, generally tell uh, content creators not to touch on other people's intellectual property, their copyrights, their trademarks, even if you have an argument um, because, because of these risks. Um, there are, you know, some instances though where, you know, the company will say, well, I don't want to reshoot this. I don't want to recreate this. It's de minimis. It's two seconds in an hour. What are the chances that they're going to see it? It's not a big part of the content. And, and that's where we get into balancing the factors and thinking about fair use and really digging into those copyright questions. But as a just blanket rule, don't use other people's IP. And then, and then we get into the fuzzy ground when there's exceptions. I've had the reverse of this happen where a couple of times where I bought, bought an original painting, the original, 
complete with bill of sale and blah, blah, blah. And the artist continued to use uh, postcards and other things of that painting and sell them. I didn't care, but I never thought of it. Uh, I guess if I really didn't want that to happen, I'd need to include that in the sales contract. That's exactly right. And so you see that a lot. Um, I did actually, I just had my family portraits done. And um, the photographer uh, was going to sell me the digital prints for some ridiculous amount of money. And, uh, but with it, I'd get the copyrights. And I'm like, well, I don't really care so much about the copyrights, but I have a right of publicity argument and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so if you're gonna try and make money off my kids' faces, um, I know how to sue you over that. And again, we didn't go there, but there are layers of intellectual property issues with those sorts of issues. But yes, you're absolutely right. If you're, just because you bought the physical painting doesn't mean that you have the copyright to the digital images that were taken by that artist before they sold you the physical painting. Yeah, uh, and I have another question. <clears throat> this January, I launched my first iOS app, it's an AR app, and I was doing, because I am a big fan of SpaceX, so I was kind of modifying, I, I, I mean, kind of like doing the same um, rocket as SpaceX, like a berry dragon. And then I did an AR app and kind of like celebrating there because in May, they, they were launching two NASA astronauts to ISS. So pretty much I kind of took um, the, the 3D model from Sketchfab and then kind of modified a little bit and I took literally Bob and Doc, their photos and then kind of kind of uh, doing the AR version of the event. And before I was a little concerned about that, so I asked people kind of working in SpaceX and they told me that it's fine, it's fan art. Yeah, and it's already launched and it's on iOS store. And uh, people told me that, yeah, I mean, uh, everything that belongs to NASA belongs to the public. Even though, because I was concerning because Bob and Doug, they, are individual, like their portrait. Is there any laws to protect their portrait? And also SpaceX, even though I know that a lot of people work working a lot of fan art for SpaceX. And I, I mean, my app is not prof, profit, it's free. And it's just like for fun and for personal practice. But if Elon Musk wants to sue me, will he do it? Or can he do it? It's just a question. Yeah, I know. Yeah, everything's so, fine right now, but I just curious. I mean, the answer is maybe, probably, I don't know. You, you know, so like I'd have to dig into um, the app itself, which, you know, I unfortunately haven't seen, but just taking your description as it is, uh, and if Elon was mad for some reason, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, a, a good example, though, of an instance where does someone have um, a lawsuit, but does none get filed? And for you know, fair disclosure, that happens a lot. But like, there's one in this space that I think is really interesting, where um, you know a uh, the BP oil, right? Everyone remembers the BP oil spill, and so there was an app where you could augment the sides of the BP oil gas stations, so it looks like there's just a funnel of oil spilling out of that pipe in their logo. 
Um, and that was sort of consumer activism, right? We're angry about the oil spill and we're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it this way with the app. Um, BP could have filed a lawsuit to see what happens. Frankly, I don't think that there's going to be, you know, a there there for them. But, you know, it's, it's similar that, you know, the, in so far as the app wasn't making any money, um, they were the opposite of fans, right? They were critical. And so there's more incentive to sue. There wasn't a lawsuit, at least none that I know of. Um, and that's part of the analysis that I have with companies. It's like, are you going to bring more bad press to yourself that you really don't want if you file the lawsuit? Or are you better to just let the thing, you know, have its moment in the sun and, and die away? And so that's part of the risk analysis that goes on behind the scenes when you're talking about, you know, someone who says, I have rights, you know, in this case, we're talking about copyrights. I have a copyright. I want to you know, do something about this. Okay, well, this is what it'll cost. And this is what, what it might look like. Do you want to go through that lawsuit? And oftentimes the answer is no, even if maybe there's a claim there. And so, you know, from a risk perspective, I'd say there's no reason to sue you, even if, you know, we were to dig into your, to your app and say, well, maybe there's a there there. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any incentive to. Cool. Thank you. Yep. Um, so a another, um, you know, example that I think is really interesting, and I think it's really interesting for a, a variety of reasons. But um, you, you might be familiar with the um, campaign between Snap and Jeff Koons, who's a relatively famous artist, um, to uh, put his balloon dog in Central Park. And the reason why I think this is interesting is because um, Jeff Koons had separately been involved in litigation over a balloon dog, um, little uh, figurine that you could buy in a store. And so he sued um, someone for having the little figurine of his balloon dog. And the court said, that's not copyrightable. It's a balloon dog. Where's the originality there? And so Jeff Koontz has lost a lawsuit over the question of originality around the balloon dog. So now we have a balloon dog that's in Central Park via Snap in augmented reality. Um, you know, and so I think the first layer is, is that copyrightable. Um, but then where things get interesting is you have this artist who um, layered uh, graffiti on top of the, um, the balloon dog in Central Park. And so you could, um, if you're working with the, the artist app, you could see the graffiti on the balloon dog, you know, and is that copyrightable? Um, now this picture, uh, which I obtained um, with courtesy from the artist, thank you, uh, you know, is copyrightable. It is no question uh, reproduced in a tangible medium and it's original uh, because it's not just a balloon dog. You have a graffitied augmented reality balloon dog sitting in Central Park, the photograph having been taken by the artist. Um, the augmented reality issues um, I do think are interesting and frankly, um, you know, would require some amount of litigation and um, some heavy lawyering on both sides to see where disputes like this would end up, particularly when you have something that's otherwise not original when fixed in a 3D medium. Um, you know, my sort of gut is uh, what ends up being original are people's pictures of their balloon dog in Central Park. So everyone using the, the app and taking their own pictures of where they've placed the balloon dog in Central Park. Um, that those compositions would be, um, you know, without a problem, copyrightable.
but just the balloon dog rendered in AR itself without um, its presentation, probably not so much. That, but, but that's where things get tricky because of how you view the technology. Um, another issue that is, uh, you know, one to think about in this space, um, and it's, it's related um, kind of the development of AI in particular, is there's case law that says that the person who owns the software owns the output of the software, uh, which generally speaking makes sense. Uh, where things get interesting is there's been litigation around a technology that allows you to um, put special um, uh, dots and uh, paint and other um, pieces of technology on actors to then render the actor's facial expressions into something else in movies. So Beauty and the Beast, the Beast used um, this technology. Um, and so who owns the Beast? Uh, obviously Disney says they do, um, and the court cases um, agree. But you know, the question is interesting because you have the software, you have the director, you have the artist, you have uh, the intellectual property of the beast, you have all of these layers of intellectual property combine, combining themselves together. And I do think that the case is rightly decided as to Disney, but um, it's worth thinking about um, in terms of you know, layering those pieces on top of each other. At what point is the copyright yours? At what point is perhaps the copyright someone else's? You know, I think that case in particular was plagued by, it had licensing problems. There, um, there wasn't agreements, um, clear agreements as to ownership of the software itself um, and how it was, um, you know, used by, by Disney. And so, um, you know, and we're going to talk about problems with licensing when we talk about rights of publicity too, but um, agreements, again, come up as something that can protect the business so you really know clearly what's yours and what's someone else's. Since you mentioned Disney, uh, there are friends working for them because my background's in animation and virtual reality and so on. They have one of the tightest employment, even for consultant contracts, I've ever seen. Uh, where anything you do, you work on, is belongs to them, not just during work hours, but after hours and on weekends and any time, even if you only work for them part-time, any time in the period uh, that you're under contract at Disney, everything belongs to them. Yep. Yep. Any more questions on copyright before we move on to right of publicity, which I've alluded to already? Uh, yeah, uh, recently I am thinking about creating an online teaching platform for X Reality. Um, the name of it is called X Reality Academy, which is kind of like online, uh, online class and teaching AR, VR, and uh, kind of like games. So yeah, so, um, Right now I'm preparing classes for gamification. And uh, since I'm not inventing this subject, right? So I read a lot of books and I'm writing some blogs. My question is that since I pretty much take a lot of people's quote, a lot of people's content and conduct a blog. Uh, and later on, I will use the content from the blog into class. Class, I will do the recording, uh, like maybe like 10 to 20 minutes for each 
small sections. And I want to, I, I'm wondering if I quote them properly and put their name um, under, can I make it a profitable class, online um, class? Yeah, so sort of putting like the business need aside and just focusing on the copyright side. Yeah, you, you should absolutely attribute quotes to individuals. Um, and you can teach, there's no question you can teach students about um, things that people have said, things that people have done, you know, so-and-so expert advises, you know, X, Y, and Z for creating this, this particular um, content. It's important that you attribute that to the people who said it. Oh, but should I tell them that I am using your words? For example, I'm going to use like someone's invention for intrinsic, extrinsic, like some map or some stuff. Should I kind of contact them about I'm going to teach like their concept, but I will fully credit for them? Or yeah, I, I'm wondering that. So generally speaking, no. But if you were to take a teacher's YouTube video, of how to do augmented reality um, user interface. And you know, they have a 30 minute YouTube video and then you just play that and put that on your website as your content, that's gonna be a humongous problem. Um, so if you're stealing, not stealing, but if you're copying lesson plans and copying videos and copying you know, wholesale things that other teachers in the space have done to create your own content, you're gonna have a problem. If you're saying there's a, a leader in virtual reality who says this, or they have a patent on this, or they've innovated that, and let's, let's dig into that. Let's explain that. Let's talk about what's innovative about that piece of AR or VR, then generally no. Um, but if you are, um, you know, taking our magic leap example, right? You know, where the, where the, um, you know, Magic Leap videos taken off of their website, put by someone else onto YouTube. There was no question in that case that that was an infringement and um, an end of discussion. And so um, you certainly don't want to be doing anything like that. Yeah. So once I finish my course, is there like, is there any way that I can just publish or it's better to consult with a, like attorney like you to make sure all the content fix, like fit? I don't want to get sued, so. Yeah, I know, and I appreciate that you don't want to get sued, and I don't want to, the answer to always be, yes, you should talk to your lawyer. Lots of, lots of times, um, it's just not economically feasible to talk to the lawyer. Um, you know, so generally, if you are not copying someone's work, you are teaching their work, and, you know, there's a lot of distinctions there, then, then you're not in trouble. Um, oh. You know, so think about, you know, textbooks um, that are used in classrooms, for example, right? Yeah. You know, you're, you're reading from the textbook, you're teaching from the textbook. Um, you know, where things get complicated is if you are taking a teacher's video, you are taking a teacher's, you know, article or, you know, entire lesson plan and using it as your own, make money off of it, that, that becomes more problematic. Um, you know, and other than that, you know, the devil's in the details in terms of working through the what, you know, so, you know, if you're like, well, there's a lot of nuances and vague areas, then it probably does make sense to talk with a lawyer and sort of better illuminate the lines that you shouldn't cross. Mm, okay. Thank you so much. Yes. Of Sorry, I had a somewhat different question, if I may. Yeah. And uh, I happen to be excited about equity crowdfunding. And there are about 10 platforms that are particularly active in the area. And I'm thinking of putting together, in effect, an app 
which simply highlights some of the campaigns, the ones that I find interesting. There is no money to be made in this case. The objective of anything is to kind of say, you know, Shark Tank 2.0, if you happen to be using the app and you like the thing, go ahead and in effect invest right through the platform, not through me in any way. So the question basically is under those circumstances, even though it's generally, I suppose, always sensible to <laughs> ask for permission and whatnot, this becomes impractical, especially since it's a free product. So the core question is uh, how, uh, how risky in effect from a copyright point of view is it to the extent that the information I'm talking about is public anyway? Yeah, I mean, so with copyright, it's not so much about whether it's public or not. It's whether or not you're, um, you know, profiting off of someone else's copyright. And, in, in, um, uh, you know, so take our um, Mickey Mouse costume example. Um, Mickey Mouse is owned by Disney and some third party creates a costume and they're making money off of it. Um, you know, if you're using a free app to aggregate information and say, here's information. So one, the other side has to have a copyright. Um, do they have a copyright on their, um, you know, uh, website, you know, or, or exactly what it is you're aggregating? Perhaps, perhaps not, sir, perhaps not the link, right? You know, if you're taking their content and using their content as your own, maybe there's a trademark issues, you know, consumers need to know that you're not affiliated with those entities um, because you could see an entity saying I don't want to be affiliated with this app it, it diminishes the value of my trademark because this is a free app and I'm a premium service mm. those issues come up so I see more trademark concerns than I do copyright concerns um, but uh, but certainly there could be if you're using just wholesale, like the first paragraph from the website, you know, click here to see more that paragraph could, you know, the organization of words, it's fixed in a tangible medium. It's original, um, could, could very well be copyrightable. Now, um, not everyone sues about things that are copyrightable and you have to register a copyright before you can file a lawsuit. So there's a lot of steps. So, which is to say, I'm at first glance, I'm not terribly worried about copyright. I'm a little bit more worried about trademark. Right. Just to be clear, by the way, in this case, more questions saying, here's startup XYZ that's listing on, let's say, Start Engine as a platform. Click over here and you literally go to the campaign yeah. on Start Engine and then do with them what they want. In other words, if you want to invest, great. If not, move on to the next one or what have you. But I yeah. get the point in terms of trademark. Thank you. Yeah. So let's move on to right of publicity, um, which is an individual right that um, exist at the state law level. So when we talk about patents, it's federal laws. When we talk about copyright, it's federal laws. There's state laws too, but usually we're talking about federal law. When we're talking about right of publicity, we're talking about state law. And the reason why that matters is we, um, as we'll see in some of the cases we're gonna talk about, uh, it matters where you get sued. It matters where you are. It matters where the other party is, what the outcome will be. Um, because this is, this is sort of the restatements, if you will, it's a generic um, sort of advisor around what the law should be. And then different states enact different versions usually of the restatement. We saw that with the trade secret piece where these, the Uniform Trade Secret Act, but then California enacted its version, the California Uniform Trade Secret Act. Um, so 
right of publicity is a personal right that individuals have to make money off of their likeness, their name, their likeness, other indicia of their identity. Um, what other indicia of their identity means varies from state to state, depending upon what they've included in their statute or what they haven't included in their statute. So as I said, it's um, something that's derived from our right of privacy, the right to be left alone. Um, and so it's the right of an individual to control the commercial use of their um, indicia of their identity, which can be their name, can be their image, their likeness, it can be their voice. Um, and so, uh, you know, it protects the unauthorized commercial exploitation of those things. Um, the flip side of that is an individual has the right to license their likeness. Um, and, you know, if we think about our tattoo cases, we didn't talk about it with, with those, but the individuals, um, the wrestlers and the um, basketball stars had licensed their likeness to 2K and Take-Two for purposes of the games. Um, and so it was the copyright artists who were saying, well, you, the individual, didn't have the right to license my tattoos on your body because you didn't get that right from me, hearkening back to Chris's question about sort of buying the painting and then sort of the digital renderings of um, the painting itself. Um, so right of publicity you know, mingles often with trade secret or with, excuse me, with trademark claims, but also with copyright claims, you know, for, for these reasons. Um, so California has its own version of uh, a right of publicity statute. Um, you don't have to show that anyone's confused. So you just have to show that it's been taken. Um, you uh, can get damages. Um, you can and get uh, lost profits, you can get your attorney's fees, you can get your costs. Um, so it's, it's you know, well, and the, the point there is um, there's incentives in the statute um, because you, um, you know, want to protect people's right of privacy. It's a, it's a public policy decision, if you will, to make it relatively um, rewarding, not, not rewarding in a, oh, I'm going to make money off of suing, but, you know, to remove some of the hurdles to have a lawsuit in order to protect people's right of privacy. So there are some defenses. Obviously, you can use it in connection with the news, um, public affairs, sports broadcast, things of that nature. Um, and then the First Amendment, right? We, you know, the First Amendment um, trumps all in that sense. Um, and so what, uh, you know, how does this play out? You know, um, Here's one example. This is under New York law. Uh, so we have a picture of Lindsay Lohan on the left, and we have an avatar of a character in um, a video game. And Lindsay Lohan sued, um, arguing that her right of publicity had been infringed by this character in the video game on the right. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting about this case is there was a question under New York law about whether or not an avatar could constitute a portrait, and that's the language in New York statute, and the court said yes. So, you know, can there be a right of publicity lawsuit filed against the creator of virtual reality or augmented reality content uh, in New York? Probably, because, you know, we have it in the video game context, virtual reality doesn't really change the legal analysis there. Again, we have the somewhat complicated question of real life and virtual in, in AR, but I think the answer is still gonna be yes, that it's gonna be a portrait within the meaning of New York law. Um, 
What's also interesting about this case is Lindsay Lohan lost her lawsuit. So even though um, she was able to you know, convince the court that the video game picture constituted a portrait within the meaning of New York law, she lost her case because the court concluded that the um, Jonas character, that was the name of the character in the game, wasn't recognizable as her in as much as it's a generic description of a 20-something woman, you know, in a bikini um, with certain um, characteristics. Um, and so I think, I always think that's an interesting case to compare to this one um, involving um, one of EA's games. And in part because, um, you know, the court was troubled uh, by the doubt that, uh, by, by the issue that EA was sort of trying to have its cake and eat it too, if you will, you know, wanted people to think that they're playing real players, uh, but they didn't want to actually use real players in their game. And, um, and so the Davis case um, ends up concluding that there's no infringement of California statute but that California has a common law right of privacy, um, and that's because common, um, California has a right of privacy in its constitution. And so under California's common law right of privacy, the court said that you could look at other factors beyond just the pictures of the individuals, um, such as jersey color, helmet color, positions that were played, um, you know, teams that they might be on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to determine whether or not there's been an infringement of a right of publicity. And so the point is, is that under California common law, there's perhaps a very broad right of publicity, broader than under its statute. And certainly if we go back to the Lindsay Lohan case, broader than um, this case where the court was still struggling with, does a video game constitute a portrait for purposes of New York's statute? Um, and so, the real takeaway here in, in right of publicity is, um, is a licensing one. Um, there are other um, cases in this space. There's a no doubt um, versus Activision case having to do with um, the use of Gwen Stefani's image in that game where um, uh, Gwen Stefani could be used to play other bands' music. And um, that wasn't spelled out in the agreement, uh, in part because, you know, I think the lawyers and the business people doing the licensing agreement hadn't really thought about how's the game going to be played, hence the lawsuit. Um, and so the licensing issue in right of publicity is really to understand what are you doing, what are you borrowing from, where did the inspiration come from, and do you need to go to a specific individual to get their permission? Um, and if you've perhaps determined I can't for economic reasons, for logistic reasons, um, going back to our Lindsay Lohan example, uh, you know, could the um, team have made some changes here to make the risk to um, take to less? Sure, of course they could. You know, she could be a brunette instead of a blonde. Um, her bathing suit could be purple instead of red. There's, you know, some simple changes you could make um, to make uh, the pictures different, uh, which is to say to reduce the risk to the business if you're not going to go to an individual and um, license from them their right of publicity. And um, sort of one final piece, you know, we're talking about real people here and here. 
Um, and obviously in the Gwen Stefani instance, um, think about real people playing characters. Um, you know, um, Keanu Reeves playing, you know, um, you know, uh, John Wick, for example, you know, and you want to put John Wick in, you know, a piece of content, uh, you know, who owns that? Um, there's copyright issues that we've talked about with Mickey Mouse, um, you know, the right of publicity issues. And, you know, so if you're going to put something in, in a piece of content that's identifiable, not just as the person, but also as a character, there's layers on layers of intellectual property issues that you need to work through. And, and yes, you need to work through with a lawyer. And then, you know, you need to have a very good understanding of who owns what rights and from whom you're getting those rights in order to put that kind of content um, into to your content. So happy to answer questions here, but you know, the big takeaway is if there's any question, um, you either do the deal or you make some changes. One uh, defense I've seen um, a lot in addition to the ones you mentioned were for uh, comedy, where you're making fun of the character and those seem to have held up pretty well. Yeah, and so, um, you know, if we go back to, right, our, one of our defenses is the First Amendment. So if you're making commentary about someone, you're making fun of them, um, you, you know, that's different, um, or at least that's the argument, right? The argument is you are using your free speech to say something, and, um, and so that def that's the defense that you're going to assert. You know, a great example there is, you know, in our political environment, um, you know, the use of the president's image to make fun of the president, um, you know, is the defense is going to be the First Amendment. Uh, yeah, recently I saw a lot of memes, right? Like Elon Musk's meme or like Trump's meme, a lot of memes are laws against the, I, I mean, any copyright or photo right can there are, the people sue them the celebrity sue them memes are a whack-a-mole problem for rights holders um you know because they pop up all over the place and you know you usually have layers of intellectual property violations on on the part of of memes um you know, so you have who owns the original photo, then you have sort of the layering of things on top of it. Is it, um, is it transformative? That's one of the questions you can ask to try to avoid a copyright infringement. Um, you, you have the rights of publicity issues and it is, um, uh, it, it depends, right? It really does depend on the specific meme, what the answer to that question is, but you're obviously using a host of intellectual property. The question is whether it's being done in an infringing way. Okay, thank you. Yep. So we're gonna move on to trademarks. Um, and um, just real, real quick, kind of a background on trademarks. There's essentially a spectrum. Um, fanciful, uh, which are the strongest, the, those that are entitled to the most amount of protection, um, you know, Kodak is a famous example for that, to generic, um, calling um, a beer a stout. You know, I saw a case filed a few years ago uh, where Lagunitas, the brewery, was claiming um, rights to IPA, um, and they were suing Sierra Nevada. And... Um, I think the case was filed on, let's say, a Tuesday, and it was dismissed on a Wednesday. It was just an uproar in the beer community about you don't own IPA. 
Um, and so, and then in the middle, you have different, um, you have arbitrary, suggestive, and descriptive. Um, and so the point being, the farther along the spectrum you get to fanciful, the more rights you have, the, the easier um, it is to have, have a strong trademark. Um, you know, it's much harder to obtain rights, trademark rights in a generic uh, trademark. Um, you know, we're gonna focus um, a little bit more on sort of the use of marks in content um, than um, obtaining a trademark. And so real quick, um, the Rogers test is something we're gonna talk about in a moment, but it's important to, um, to spell out what we're talking about in content. Um, and so the case um, involved the title, um, and the title was Ginger and Fred. And the, um, the argument was that that uh, infringed, um, that was an infringing um, trademark use. And um, the court ends up saying, well, is there artistic relevance to the title? And um, and in that case, it says, um, yes, it is because of the subject matter of the movie. Um, but this artistic relevance test is the test that we, you know, look to or, or talk about in um, the content space and video games and augmented reality and virtual reality. And so this is a good example of how the artistic test has been applied in video games. So on the left, you have um, a picture of a gentleman's club um, in the LA area. Um, uh, and on the right, you have a picture of a gentleman's club in a video game. And um, the lawsuit was filed by uh, the playpen against the video game creators saying, you've infringed our trademark. You took our trademark from us. And the court said, no, no. The, the video game is about um, a fictional city that looks and feels like Los Angeles, but isn't really, and it has some of the grit and it has some of the um, characteristics of Los Angeles, but um, it's not the same trademark. It's not um, um, anything that makes consumers think, aha, I, I know who that is. And, and it created the atmosphere um, artistically for the video game. And so that's usually what we're, we're talking about when we're talking about content, you know, is there artistic relevance to the use of the trademark in content? Um, so this is an artist rendition of what augmented reality trademarks might look like in the future. Um, and the question is, is the trademark test that we know already, is the case law going to be different or the same? Are we going to have new rules or are we going to have old rules? And we haven't had a lot of trademark litigations. So we don't, we don't, and we certainly don't have an answer to this question. But my prediction and colleagues that work in this space, their prediction is that it's probably going to be the same test. Um, and so what we're looking at is we're looking at, is there a likelihood of confusion? And so we go back to you know, these images. Is there a likelihood that consumers playing the video game think that the playpen uh, sponsored or endorsed in some way the video game? And the court said, no, no. Consumers are interested in the atmosphere, the feel of the game, and having um, the Pigpen Gentleman's Club in the game um, created that artistic relevance. Um, is it going to matter how you know things are seen, whether it's on a 
mobile phone or with glasses or goggles, again, no, the question's still going to be the same. Are we, are we worried about consumers being confused? Are we going to, are we worried that consumers are going to think that one particular company has endorsed um, a particular product or service? We talked a little bit about it. You know, is it going to impair the brand in some way? Is it going to tarnish the rep reputation? Um, is there nominative or, um, or non-commercial use, um, you know, is, is a defense, if you will. So these are the same questions we already ask. And so when you're thinking about trademark uh, in AR and VR, we're predictably going to be using the same sorts of analyses. And so let's take a, let's take a real example. Um, this was a Burger King campaign in Brazil. Um, where you could use the Burger King app to burn McDonald's billboards um, and other McDonald's materials um, and light them on fire. Um, and so, you know, the other example we've talked about already is the BP, the BP oil um, app example. Um, the BP oil case, as I said, wasn't, there wasn't anything um, filed in terms of a lawsuit that I'm aware of. Um, and in part, you know, why would BP oil not file a lawsuit? I don't think there's any chance that consumers are going to be confused that BP oil sponsors an ad where, uh, you know, oil is seen to be linky, leaking out of its pipes. I don't think it's, consumers are going to be confused by that. Is, um, are consumers likely to be confused by using a Burger King app to burn up McDonald's billboards? No, no, they're not going to be confused. But is McDonald's perhaps going to be upset about, you know, its brand being tarnished in some way and try and say, you're using my mark in that way and file a lawsuit? Maybe. I'm not aware of any lawsuit being filed. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, that would make sense, but we're getting closer to the incentives that we've talked about um, for a lawsuit to be filed. Um, and, and I think we will eventually see a conquest ad lawsuit. We haven't seen one yet. Um, this, is, this is a lawsuit involving Kim Kardashian West. Um, she worked with uh, a company to create a bunch of emojis uh, using her image and her trademarks, and then they got in a, a fight about um, the licensing issues and the contracting issues. It's a very complicated uh, pleading in terms of what the allegations were, but um, can you have trademarks and images? And, you know, obviously we already know you have, she has rights in her image to profit off of that. And, you know, the point here is, is yes, you know, when it comes to augmenting individuals' identities, um, particularly, you know, where it's been rendered already in an artistic form, so that these memojis, you have copyright issues, you have trademark issues, you have right of publicity issues. Um, so there are, there are layers of intellectual property rights when we think about augmenting individuals' identities um, that would have to be thought through. In the VR space, um, I haven't seen anything like this yet, but I, I do think we're going to see some of this. So you can register a scent. And so Play-Doh has registered, uh, or, you know, I guess whoever the, the maker of Play-Doh is, but Play-Doh is a registered scent. Um, so are we going to see in um, uh, uh, 3D entertainment um, venues, scents being registered or sounds or vibrations, uh, perhaps? Uh, and then are we going to see litigation around those issues, perhaps? Um, and so there aren't a lot of 
for obvious reasons, there aren't a lot of registrations for sense, but um, I think there's a real uh, forum for that in, um, in this space, and it's something to watch out for and, and think about and pay attention. Uh, yeah, Chris. An example of uh, sounds that you mentioned, Harley-Davidson uh, trademark, it's sound, and when um, Honda tried to make a motorcycle just that looked just like it, uh, they got sued because the, uh, they replicated the sound of a Harley. Yep. Uh, trade dress is a cousin to trademark, and it comes out of the same statute. And so um, trade dress is the look and the feel of something, someplace. You can have trade dress in a packaging. You can have trade dress in, a, in an object, although that's harder. Um, you can certainly have trade dress in um, places. Um, I think of Starbucks as having a fabulous trade dress. Like I know when I'm in a Starbucks, um, you know, and I picked this picture in part because I imagine it was taken at a Starbucks in part just because of, you know, the coloring and everything. Um, trade dress is a really hard thing to create. Um, you know, it takes time to create trade dress and the look and the feel, but you can, there are challenges. Um, it can't, you, you, you can't, claim rights and the functionality and so there was litigation in the iphone space over the trade dress of the orientation of the icons and that did not did not go anywhere um, successfully but the question being could you get to the point where you have a trade dress in a graphical user interface in virtual reality um, or an augmented reality and i think the answer is yes you could um, and so in terms of thinking about creating those things um, knowing that you can have a trade dress right is something to, to think on. Again, it's hard to create. It takes time and you, there are limitations to it, but um, it's one thing that to think about if you're looking at someone else's interface and saying, God, I really like that. Um, they might think they have a trade dress in their interface. And then we've talked a bit about, um, uh, sort of like the use of content by other people already. And, um, you know, user-generated content is an issue uh, certainly uh, online, certainly in video games, and it certainly is going to be, um, as the virtual reality economy develops, um, sort of on various platforms. And um, the publisher of the content has every reason to want to own and control the IP they've created that we've been talking about. But there's this counterbalancing interest to engage with the community around the excellent content that you've created. And there's tension there because the rights holder wants to control and profit off of their rights, but they also want to have an engagement with their community. So one of the things that we've been seeing recently in um, EULAs and user license agreements are fan kits around what kinds of um, engagement is acceptable with the copyrights, with the trademarks of the publisher, and what kinds of um, uses are unacceptable. And so while we're talking about um, end user license agreements, and not all of the content that we've talked about, um, can you have an end user license agreement? There are other, right, there's the, the obtaining the rights of publicity. You know, that's not, you're not gonna get that through a terms of use. You're gonna get that with a bespoke agreement with that individual. But um, your terms of use will lay out which state's law. Do you want to get sued in New York or California? Uh, is there an arbitration agreement or not? 
Um, are you going to have fan kits and are you going to say this is acceptable, this is unacceptable? Um, and the answer is yes, 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 yes. You should have all of the things spelled out in an end user license agreement um, and you should be getting um, consent to that. I like um, an affirmative consent. So it could be check the box, push the I accept, but you can't advance farther than um, into the into the platform without accepting. And if they don't accept, you can't move forward. Um, I've seen uh, variations on this, um, and there's been a lot of litigation about how to create enforceable terms of use. We're not talking about that now, but the thing I want you to know is I want there to be an affirmative. Um, action taken by the user to accept the terms of use and the privacy policy before the user can move along. And no way to avoid seeing it and no way to avoid knowing that they've done it. Um, and then there are nuances there, but there's a lot of reasons to have them and to have them um, consented to. So bucket of issues um, under our trademark section, happy to sort of dig into those questions before we get into our last section where I'm gonna talk a little bit about advertising your content. Alrighty. So as I said earlier, advertising laws um, certainly spin out of um, the Lanham Act, the Lanham Act being the statute that we, we look to for um, trademark infringement issues, for trade dress issues. Um, but there's a whole bucket of other laws and common law that play into advertising. It's an enormous, enormous topic, and I do presentations that are just on advertising. So we're just going to hit on a few that I think are important in this space to think about. One is um, keyword advertising. So there's a lot of you know, buying of keywords to promote um, links um, for, for different pieces of um, you know, online content. Um, and there's case law that says that buying the, the keywords to your competitors' names or names that are related isn't a trademark infringement. And so, um, you know, one, you know, that's good. Um, so generally speaking, not going to be a trademark infringement. Where I think things get interesting is, you know, if we get to the point in AR where you can buy markers, um, take our conquest ad example, where somehow McDonald's can't place something there or there's some blocking technology or something like that. I think the, the, um, the uh, geographic issues with augmented reality could make keyword advertising, if we ever get there, interesting and tricky. Um, so for the most part, if we're just talking about the internet, um, there's no issues, but I do have concerns about um, certain kinds of blocking technology that might come about that might make it impossible for a rights holder to um, have augmented reality um, technology applied to their uh, real world labels, their real world signs and logos and things like that. And then the other space where we just see a lot of issues, and I want to make sure since we're talking about content, we've talked about using content, is using influencers. So. There's no question at this point that content that's put out by an influencer, it doesn't have to be Selena Gomez. It can be, um, you know, a mom in her home in, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area who, you know, likes a particular kind of sock, you know, for her kids or whatever, right? You know, who has 10,000 followers. It, it doesn't have to be an enormous celebrity, but um, hiring someone, um, engaging with someone to promote a brand is uh, an ad. 
and um, the hiring can be, I'm going to give you early access to this game. The hiring can be, I'm going to send you this, these pair of socks for free. And I want you to review them. Um, and so uh, what we think about is um, having a material relationship between the brand and the individual. And I really just, um, when I'm counseling clients around this, I do say material relationship is anything that perhaps brings value to that individual. One example that I saw recently was helping the individual grow their user base. If you do these things for us, then we'll help direct traffic to you. Uh, but there's no exchange of money. You know, to me, that's a material relationship and that user's content needs to be disclosed as an ad. Disclosing as an ad um, now really means hashtag ad or something more creative that still clears um, the FTC's endorsement guidelines. Um, you know, who, who has the responsibility for doing these disclosures? The influencers do, the brands do, and if you're engaging with influencers, um, and by you, I mean, I'm assuming the brand, um, the media companies have an obligation to make sure the disclosures are happening. So everybody at every level has an obligation to make sure that these disclosures are happening. The FTC has said that the problem in influencer advertising arises, um, and I guess I've covered up my technology here, but basically when um, you know readers or others on social can't tell the difference between independent opinions and paid advertising. That's the problem. Um, and paid advertising now, this is an older quote, as you can see, does mean um, it doesn't have to be an exchange of money. Um, you know, material connection is the standard that we that we worry about. Um, and so, clear disclosure is uh, different depending upon the medium. We don't have good guidance on how, in part because the industry is still developing, on how one's going to disclose a connection if the technology is in virtual reality, if the technology is in augmented reality. I, I, don't, I don't really see the problem there, but like one example you know, that I've had posed to me is what if you have a group of avatars that are engaging with each other on a subject and one of them has been paid to promote something about the subject. Um, how do you disclose in this meeting room environment where you have these 3D renditions of individuals that one of these individuals is there and they're paid to be there? And um, we've brainstormed different ways to do that. We don't have guidance from the Federal Trade Commission on how to do that. We do know that there needs to be a clear and conspicuous disclosure of the relationship. What that means in virtual reality is something that's going to have to work itself out just as it has in social media. Um, but if you're doing that kind of um, you know, advertising in virtual reality, it's tricky and it's definitely a space where you should be talking to a lawyer about it. Um, with that, I'm happy to take any additional questions. Um, stop sharing my screen, let the meetup continue. Uh, any questions? I don't have any questions. I just wanted to say thank you very much indeed. That has been exceedingly informative and uh, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll uh, echo what Ralph said. Uh, there's one more uh, interesting area that's related. Uh, when I went to uh, an XR meeting, uh, there was a, a legal um, uh, meeting with it for wearables. It is uh, uh, wearable sensors on your uh, wrist or whatnot that takes physiological information uh, from you. 
what your uh, heart rate variability is and whatnot. And those then interact with um, either video games or, virtu or therapeutic virtual reality. And the interesting part is if the information from the wearable goes to your uh, cell phone and then gets transmitted somewhere, uh, who owns that information? And what the lawyers there told me is uh, uh, it's a wild west right now. So as in so many of the other things that you've covered so well, thank you. It, it's absolutely um, recommended to uh, uh, see an attorney about this because it's just, as you said, it's just layers on layers. Yeah, the wearable space in particular, and I, I, I really appreciate you giving that example, is um, so many layers. So there are laws now around um, uh, what disclosures you have to have in your privacy policies around biometric data. And how you treat biometric data now sort of has their different states with different laws around that issue. So do you need consents to your privacy policies? Yes. Do you need to work through your privacy policies with a lawyer to make sure they comply with the various states' laws about biometric data? Yes. Do you need to disclose what you're doing with that data? Yes. And then you have the question of who owns the data. I mean, layers on layers. Um, you know, and the headline there is, you know, anyone who's dealing in biometric data. And that's definitely something in the space when you think about eye tracking issues, um, uh, you know, needs to be working with a lawyer. It, uh, just to show you, underline how powerful this is, I work with the Virtual Reality uh, Medical Center down in La Jolla, and uh, they, they do therapy, use VR for therapy, PTSD, and a bunch of things. But one of the uh, biometric data points is heart rate variability and the MD who runs it says, if he's got a record of your HRV, he can predict two days ahead whether you're gonna have a heart attack or not. So this data can be very powerful. For sure. And thanks mm -hmm. again. Yeah, yeah no, thank, thank you everyone. I appreciate all the great questions and comments. It's fun to have it be interactive. Just one quick point, if I may, and that is you pointed out earlier on for apps that you I think it's very important for people to agree to the terms and so on. It is a peculiarity in my mind that uh, when you think about it, that agreement is not really an agreement. It's almost more like a pistol to your head. Either you agree or you simply don't get access, which means that it seems to lack, from that point of view, the essence of any agreement since it is one way or no way. And that is always yeah. something that's astonished me. The courts would disagree with you on that. Um, so they would say you don't have to use the content. You don't have to use the app or the website. Um, but to your point about it needing to be a contract, that's where we see quite a bit of um, debate. And so if you, uh, yeah, I've seen uh, where the terms of use are just in the app store you know so like you if you're digging in and you're like okay here are the terms of use and you download the app and you play the app and there's no there's no accept um courts are going to be saying no i don't think the consumer consented to those terms because they didn't do anything to consent to it in particular in california there's case law that says if you've used light colored font and a small size at the bottom of the website that's not good enough and so even if it's there so, um, you know, where I'm at, um, and I, I have a client that's in the healthcare space working on an Alexa skill, you know, so how do we get consent 
in the audible format to terms of use such that we can say you've consented to us doing this and it goes back to chris's point about you know um you know you know health data uh it's important that we have that consent um, the courts are very much you need to show consent if you don't show consent then you don't have a contract to your point but once someone's clicked i accept the court's like well you chose to go forward with it you accepted it so we have a deal makes sense thank you so much mm -hmm. yeah uh, any other questions? I have one. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you so much for your speech. Uh, sorry, I joined halfway, and I, I hope I didn't ask repetitive questions. But um, one, so in the sense of crowdsourcing, um, so if there is a app function that allows users to update the photos of what they've seen, for example, on the street or um, or the cars, or perhaps potentially neighborhood. Um, so they updated in, let's say in this app, so other people can see and help each other out to find things or to alert each other. Would that also infringe a copyright because it's someone else's house or, yeah, how? So I mean, it, it depends. Um, so let's say they're taking a picture um, of the street and there's a, someone's mural on the background, um, you know, on, a, on the wall to a building. You know, the person who has the mural might say, um, oh, you, you know, you're infringing my copyright. Now, what are the chances of that happening? You know, probably low because it sounds like they're not doing it for a commercial purpose. But, you know, let's say someone, um, you know, shows up with a professional camera, takes a picture of the mural and then starts, you know, selling T-shirts with the mural on it. You know, you're going to see perhaps a lawsuit coming out of that. So it really does depend upon what's in know the um, the pictures that are being taken mm -hmm. but it's certainly possible I see um, I, let me give you a little a more specific description so for example um, if it's someone taking a photo to alert that there is a suspicious person wearing sunglasses and looking like they're gonna steal from another car they just look weird so they upload this person's photo online so would it possible that this person with glasses can sue the app or the person probably probably not um because you're not it sounds like you're not doing it to exploit the commercial purpose of that person you're doing it mm -hmm. to say you know i mean think about like all of the um the ring doorbell examples we've had this person stole my package help me yeah. find my package right you're not using that picture for a commercial purpose you're using that picture to get your package back um, so, you know, in that sense, it really does depend. Now, if someone, you know, takes the picture of the person because, you know, they think there's something really artistic and interesting about the person, and let's say the person has a commercial presence, and you're using that picture of that person to make money, putting it on a t-shirt, you know, putting it on a website, using it as your logo, that person could say, no, 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 that's my face. That mm -hmm. is me. That is me with the interesting hair and the interesting glasses and the interesting earrings and everybody knows it's me and see my Instagram over here with a million followers. I, I make money off of my presence and you're making money off of um, my persona. And since you're making money off of my image, you okay. need to stop it. Okay. Okay. That's very clear. Thank you. Yep. Thank you so much. Uh, any other questions? Um, uh, I think Matt, you put some um, 
uh, comments on the chat. Do you wanna ask questions, Matt? I appreciate the positive comments, Matt, and everything. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, so thank you so much for Kimberly's um, like presentation, and we all learn a lot about uh, the copyright and IP. Yeah, so thanks again, and I will upload this recorded videos uh, to you for all your uh, marketing and all your purpose. So yeah, thanks everyone joining us, and then see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.